In today's episode, we open our Bibles to a brand new book. This time, we are in the Old Testament with the prophet Micah. Today, we start with chapter 1. Micah 1 begins with the prophet's ominous proclamation of judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem. He paints a vivid picture of impending destruction and upheaval. He describes the coming devastation of these cities due to their idolatry and their corruption and their social injustices. Micah's message, though, highlights God's righteous anger toward the people and their disobedience, and it warns of consequences that they'll face for their sins. This chapter will set the tone for the whole book, emphasizing themes of judgment, retribution, and the need for repentance, but above all, the hope of the coming Messiah. Good morning and blessed Advent. Today is Thursday, November 30th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Actually, you know what? It's not Advent yet. It's almost Advent. I guess we have a couple of days, but still, this is Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Remember that Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the generous folks over at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Would you do me a favor? Go online, lhfmissions.org. Learn more about their translating and publishing work. Again, that's lhfmissions.org. They can do a lot for you because they do a lot for the kingdom. And if you have any questions or comments about anything we say on today's show, feel free to email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. If you want to uh, you know, find me on Facebook, you can. Friend me. We'll chat. You can also send your questions or comments through Facebook. But for now, I want to welcome uh, my guest this morning. It's the Reverend Rick Jones. He's the chaplain and vice president of spiritual life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Welcome back to the program, Pastor Jones. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Always enjoy my time here, Pastor Boo. Yeah, I, I love having you on too. It gives this great perspective. You know, that's the great thing about this program is I hear from pastors in all kinds of contexts, and your context isn't always a, a, a church liturgical one, right? You have a, a different context that you serve. Right. Uh, Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch is a residential treatment center for at-risk youth. Uh, we also have outpatient services through our Dakota Family Services Clinics. And we've got campuses uh, in Minot, Bismarck, and Fargo, all catering to the educational needs, the residential needs, the therapeutic needs, and the clinical needs of 10 to 18-year-olds who have been through some pretty rough times in their lives. And so that's that's my context. My call is to, yeah, an institution um, that uh, does work tangential to the church proper, uh, but not to a congregation. No, and but but so important and so needed, and we're we're blessed by your ministry. Well, I tell you what, why don't we go ahead and start our time off in prayer, and then we'll just dive into the text. Absolutely, dear Lord, as we dig into your word today, we would ask that you would open our hearts, send your Spirit into us, that we would learn the lessons that you have for us in the prophet Micah, uh, and bless us with those that wisdom those lessons, those truths that you would have us to learn, that we would continue to be your children and we would act as you have called us to be. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Micah, tell us a little bit about who Micah is. This is what we one of the minor prophets, which means we don't have a whole lot from him, but boy, what we have is important. Tell us a little more. Right, so, well, as you said, they're minor prophets. Um, doesn't mean less important, just means shorter. 
uh, versus the major prophets, which which are not more important, just longer books. And so Micah, yeah, one of the the book of the twelve, the twelve minor prophets. There, he is active as the first verse will show us during the reigns of of King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah, all of which are kings of of Judah. Uh, we've got reigns there. Jotham was roughly 750 to 735 BC. Ahaz is 735 to 715 BC. And Hezekiah is 715 to 687 BC. Um, Micah is a prophet there to the people. Uh, that's where he's active during those reigns. His name means who is like Yahweh. Um, that is kind of a, a fitting name considering some of the prophecy we're going to see, especially in this first chapter, comparing Yahweh to the idols that have cropped up. And uh, as you kind of stated before, the, this opening section of the book is, is not exactly a happy set of texts. Uh, this isn't where we're getting a lot of gospel hope. It's, it's really a lot of law. It's a lot of judgment and warning to the people for... Uh, what they've been doing, that they have gone after foreign gods. They have been committing blatant idolatry, not just in their worship, but even in how they're conducting their lives. So where we're at right now in history is the kingdom has been split for several hundred years now. Uh, we've got not just Judah and Israel, it's both. So Israel is is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh Judah still has Jerusalem as its capital. It will survive longer through history than Israel will, who has set up an alternative capital in Samaria and are conducting their worship in that place, which is contrary to God's instructions. And that's what the themes of the book. It's going to be punishment. It's going to be warning for what their choices, what their actions, what their false faith has done for them. The book itself is a collection of oracles or, or sermons delivered by the prophet throughout his life, um, which is noted by that kingly timeline. Um, as I said, Israel and Judah had kind of been severed at this time. The people are reverting to living um, in complete similarity to the peoples around them. There's no discernible difference from the Jewish Israelites and the Canaanite people all around them anymore. And mm. now is the time that Micah's visions are going to show that. They're going to show this complete disregard for God's covenant and the commandments uh, and what that's going to mean for God's people. It, uh, other than this, uh, other than this book of prophecy and this book of warning, Micah appears to be an insignificant player in the political lives of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. From a, I mean, he's from a back country town southwest of Jerusalem. That Morisheth Gath, uh, we don't really know much more about it than that. Res relatively short book of prophecy, but it is powerful and it is strong in its warnings. Our, the section today is full bore law. Uh, the, the tone of the book changes to that gospel hope uh, more towards chapter 4. Micah's life will include the Assyrian exile in 722. That's Israel and the, the tribes there being carried off into exile and uh, but he'll he'll miss the the Babylonian exile of Judah by basically exactly a hundred years so that's kind of the setting that we're seeing and the content of what we're going to be looking at so if we're putting Micah 
um, ministering to Jerusalem in around the 8th century, then that makes him a contemporary of Isaiah. Is it fair to say that one of the big differences is that Isaiah is focusing a lot on that royal family and those relationships, whereas Micah really is just focusing on the regular people? That, that very well could be, uh, or their scopes are just a little different. Sure. Isaiah uh, intertwined with their lives and so is, is doing his ministry with them, where Micah is kind of broad view, the whole kingdom, both kingdoms, uh, the, the messages for everyone. And actually, the opening verses are going to do that too, not just the kingdoms, but the whole earth. Uh, mm-hmm. to put us in our place before God. Uh, and yeah, you mentioned Isaiah. He's a contemporary with Isaiah and also Hosea. Mm, okay, sure, sure. And, and you know, I, it's interesting when you think about that, you go, God has different prophets in different areas. Um, their mm-hmm. scopes are different, as you pointed out. Perhaps even their audiences are a little different. Yeah. And one question I always like to try to answer through the course of the hour is the whiffum factor, right? What's in it for me? Uh, and, and what you said earlier, we're already getting application. You said, um, it's not a quote, but you said Israel was becoming uh, like its neighbors, indistinguishable from its right. neighbors. Is that not the struggle of Christians and believers across time? But especially today, so many people, especially the younger they are, are so uh, just, they desire so much to be like, well, the nation around them instead of being a unique right. Christian because it puts a target on you. Right, right. Absolutely. That is always the struggle. Uh, you know, that's, that's a big part of the identity that God gives to his people. Though They are set apart for a purpose, consecrated, right? They have meaning and a purpose for the things they do, the choices they make, the way they conduct their lives. It should all be motivated by his covenant with them. And that uh, that is a hard thing to do with the pressures that we get from the society around us. The very first verse says, the word of Yahweh that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, uh, Samaria and Jerusalem, those are the capitals of this divided kingdom, right? Right, right. So, this is really a message for all people, and, and it would certainly include the royal family, but... You know, when we think of Samaria, we think of Samaritans. Is is there a connection there at all? Absolutely. That's so. That's the that's the alternative, right? So when we fast forward to the New Testament, there's this huge rift between the the Jewish people and the Samaritans, and that's because the Samaritans are the descendants of those that had split off to be a part of Israel and set up their own capital, their own worship centers in Samaria. Um, they they violated those instructions. They violated that that part of the covenant. That the temple in Jerusalem is where Yahweh is to be worshipped. They did otherwise. They forsake their their brothers in the kingdom of Judah and go off and do their own thing. So when we get both sets returning after their exiles, there's a lot of political and cultural tension between them. This is like. Uh, a millennia deep feud, much worse so than even the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is going all the way back to this split of the kingdom. And so when we get into the time of, of Christ, this is all in the background, that it is unthinkable that the Jews would have dealings with the Samaritans because they mm. forsook God uh, from the very beginning. And, and of course, underplaying all of this, and, and I think part of it is out of God's promise, but you have 
a a sense of connection to the land as of course the inheritance but mm-hmm. you know when you have now the inheritance being divided it it seems like people couldn't think outside of the land the nation the capitals right and yet jesus when he encounters the woman at the well says mm-hmm. either on that mountain or or in this will you worship but you, you know you'll worship god in spirit and truth so right. you know it, it's we see the seeds here for things that are, well, frankly, still going on today. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it takes the division that the people instituted, right? The splitting of Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem. It takes Christ to bring back together. He right. brings that peace. He brings that reconnection because it's not about the land. It's not about the place anymore. It's about the faith. It's about Israel or Judah reduced to one. It's about the Messiah. Well, let's hear. Uh, the ESV editors uh, title the coming section, actually, um, almost, if not, nope, all, <laughs> entitles, entitles <laughs> all of our section for today, The Coming Destruction. So I have a yeah. feeling that we're not going to get any gospel today. We'll, we'll fit it in for <laughs> sure, folks. Don't worry. Let's look at chapter uh, 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord Yahweh be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, Yahweh is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, I'm going to stop right there just for a moment in the middle of verse 5. So just this first section, hear yeah. you peoples, all of you. I, I don't know, that, that, that verse, that little, you know, all of you, listen. I, I don't know, it just it's the emphasis of, look, this isn't just for the sinners out there, the people who think they're sinless. You have to listen to, hear you peoples. Take us through it. Right, so and even before that, right, the very first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. This is standard prophetic preamble. It appears over a hundred times in the Old Testament. It is a, a a phrase that the people know, okay, this is important. I need to listen to this. This is getting them into the mode to receive this message. And then we immediately go into, and who is this prophecy for? It's for everyone. It is for all the nations of the people. It's it's inviting everyone to take heed and and look at what's going to happen. Yes, it's going to focus on the fates of Israel and Judah, but the warning is for all people of the earth. Everyone should learn the lessons God's people are about to learn. That's what he's getting at. Um, And then we've got the phrase in verse 2 there, the Lord God in all capital letters. This is kind of interesting. So it it indicates the Hebrew was Yahweh Adonai. Uh, anywhere we see the Lord in all capitals in our Old Testament, that indicates that the the proper name of God, Yahweh, was in the text. But out of fear of inadvertently breaking that second commandment of misusing God's name, the the editors and the translators just substitute Adonai, Lord, in there. Uh, so when you get both terms used together, they had to come up with another way to indicate that. And so they came up with, in all capitals, the Lord God. So that's Yahweh Adonai. Uh, Just kind of an interesting little thing. We see that a few places in the Old Testament, but right here at the beginning, it's really emphasizing who this is that's giving this warning. Who is um, 
going to be responsible and why we, we need to pay attention. It is the, the divine name being used here is, is setting all of this up. And then God himself is going to be the one that bears witness against his people, the creator himself, the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, will stand against his creation. The imagery alludes to the social structures of the people with the high places, that's the places set up for worship and for political power, as well as the natural structures of power with the, with the imagery of the mountains and the valleys. In both cases, the God of creation stands above and superior to them. He will trample the man-made sites of power and authority, and the impressive natural sites of awe and beauty will likewise be unmade utterly and totally. Wax dissolves and runs everywhere when it's introduced to a flame, right? And the idea of water running down a, a falls, it elicits the complete chaos and disorder of a river being reduced to froth and mist. The Lord's holy temple, his place, is representative of both the temple in Jerusalem as well as his holy throne. And so the sins and errors of the people are so egregious here that the Lord of creation must come down himself to settle the accounts. It is a big deal. Micah has a big message for the people, and everyone needs to listen. And there's this one visual image that's just popping out of the page for me, and that is, you know, God, we think of where he is, and you already said it, right, from his holy temple um, on earth at Jerusalem uh, at this time, and then, of course, from his throne in heaven. And so right. we have this picture of God being at his throne in heaven, basically from which no nothing can escape. He knows all things. <laughs> yes. And and verse 3, I don't know, just the language strikes me because it says, for look, behold, hine, right? Look, Yahweh mm -hmm. is coming out of his place. Now, this is speculative, but it makes me wonder if people often thought, well, God's up there. You know, he's away. Yeah. He, he, he's arm's length. It, even if they believed he could see things, they didn't think that he'd ever do anything about it. So not only does he begin with saying, the Lord is witnessing you from his high holy temple, and he's going to come down. And not only is he going to come down, but he's going to tread upon the high places of the earth. As you already explained to the audience, that's those centers of idolatrous worship in Samaria mm -hmm. and Jerusalem, the, the high, uh, in this case, unholy, but holy places. Yeah, yeah. And from God's point of view... He has to come down even to get to the highest places of these false gods. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just, I, the, I just love uh, it because it, it teaches so much about God. Right. To to use sort of a, a dated stereotype, you know, wait till your father gets home, or uh, you know, right. the the father on the car trip with the unruly passengers in the back. Don't make me come back there. It's it's that that time has been reached. That's what's going to happen. And it says, verse 5, and I'm going to keep on reading after, all yeah. this is for the transgression of Jacob and for mm -hmm. the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country and a place for planting mm -hmm. vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces all her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Okay, stopping there at the end of seven. Yeah, it kind of escalates quickly. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. What is the transgression of Jacob? Uh, he asks, and then answers, "Is it not Samaria?" I think we have an idea, right. but take us through what that actually means. I mean, transgression just means sin. So, how are they sinning again? Yeah, and even in even um, more de- literally, maybe even rebellion. Transgression often oh, used. Oh, yeah, that's good. Um, so, so rebellion. And what is this? rebellion it is it is false worship it is it is worshiping in a way that we think we can invent uh, when god has told us otherwise what's really kind of fun here with we get the benefit of the new testament 2020 hindsight the mention of jacob is not just um, a, a a stand-in for the patriarchs in general here jacob is the one who established the israelite line in the area that would be samaria the capital of israel the kingdom that has split off from Judah, right? Forsaking its brothers, forsaking that connection. Because in John's gospel, the Samaritan woman at the well references that well as an ancestral gift from Jacob. He right. was the one that established that. You already talked about this woman. We said, they said on this hill, we're supposed to worship this hill. You say we're supposed to worship on that hill. And Jesus puts all of that to rest. But that's what this is. This is why Jacob being connected to Samaria is is so deep. Israel's rebellion is forsaking Jerusalem as the place of worship established by God and setting up a new worship site in Samaria. And this is what leads to the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that stretches into the New Testament. It's also then the other um, attitudes and, and philosophies that, go with this idolatry of rebellion that we can go against God's be God's rules because they're making it about their ancestry. They're making it about what their forefathers have given them, not realizing that even all of the forefathers, even the patriarchs, were God's gift to carry the covenant for the people. Well, and we see this destruction that's coming upon them. Right. I mean, that connection to the woman at the well is absolutely, I mean, critical in understanding just how Jesus's mind works. I mean, he, he yeah. we, we talk about how he made his way purposely there. And I, I, I tend to think that he absolutely is. And he, mm-hmm. he encounters this woman and he settles this debate, but not just before her, right? The whole point right. is that this gets recorded for all of us. But yeah. we look, we look here and, and what do we see, though? That the sin of turning away from the one true God, carved images. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and then it talks about her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols are laid away. Right. But the fee of the prostitute, that's how she got them. But the fee of the prostitute is how they're going to return. I, that right, probably right. deserves some unpacking. <laughs> what is yeah, that no, there's, there's lots in here. So I, I really wanted to focus on that Samaria-Jacob bit that it talked about. But, um, you know, Judah's not left out of this either, right? Micah right. is prophesying judgment against both nations. Jerusalem is also engaging in the same idolatry that Israel is. They just haven't set up a whole separate country and a whole separate capital. But the permissive kings have allowed pagan worship in the temple of Yahweh and throughout the kingdom with alternative high places. Altars of worship have been set up and their hearts are just as far from the Lord as their northern brothers. Uh, The prophet is describing complete annihilation of the kingdoms here. In this section, he's focusing in on Samaria with even the stones being torn down and scattered. The sites will be unrecognizable as a city and will be fit 
to even grow crops in, right? You can, it'll be a vineyard instead, unrecognizable as a city. The idols being mentioned again indicate the source of their sin. This is where it all stems from is this idolatry. And being destroyed is, is and those idols being destroyed is again pointing to God's dominion over all things. It is the creator himself who's coming down to, to bring this justice. He is the only true and living God. These other objects of worship will re, be reduced to rubble and debris. And so that brings us to, okay, well then we really have to understand what idolatry is. The common analogy for idolatry is adultery. These two are seen as the same thing. And so the imagery here is no exception and it is completely straightforward. Micah is not disguising it at all. He's suggesting that all the resources the people have put into idolatry, the the making of the idols, the carving, the serving them, the giving the sacrifices, all the things that they're doing, all of the money and the wealth and the goods that they are spending, worshiping their own desires and these man-made images is nothing more than the fee that you would pay to a prostitute. It is, it is the same thing. It is, they are absolutely the same. There's no real relationship there. There's no depth. There's no connection. There's no commitment or honor. It is the opposite of a marriage, which is what the people are supposed to have with Yahweh, with the Lord. They are in a covenant relationship with God, a marriage relationship between their creator and the people. And so this idolatry is a violation of that sacred bond and a perverted, hollow, and empty one at that. The wickedness is so bad that the prophet is going to compare this, the, the weeping and the mourning that happens over this broken marriage, this, this adulterous relationship, he compares it to the wild animals. So when, when it talks about the fee of the prostitute, so for from the fee of the prostitute she gathered them, and, and you beautifully explained how this is alluding to Israel's spiritual adultery. Absolutely yeah. no doubt about it. At the same time, because pagan worship often included uh, sexual activity, temple prostitutes, that sort of thing, sure, um, could there have been that actually going on too, like on the ground? Because they're collecting oh, their idols by basically raising money through their false worship? Oh, absolutely. No, and again, the, the, we are so far past a, a nation distinguished and set apart mm. by God. They, they've completely gone away from that, that it's indistinguishable from the neighboring communities. So if the, if the Canaanite religions are using temple prostitutes— then the people in Samaria and Jerusalem are doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we go back to uh, the book of Judges. So a couple of you know, generations earlier, it's the same type of thing. Because they failed to cleanse the land, they are brought into the, the idolatrous practices of their neighbors. Archaeologists for a long time were baffled, like, well, why aren't we seeing evidence of a distinct, distinctively Jewish culture here. Why why are we not seeing the the altars to Yahweh? Why are we not seeing these things? It's because they're so depraved, they're so corrupt that they are not distinguishing themselves by living separately. They are exactly the same as the people around them. And that's why now after they've had an established kingdom, after they've had an established temple system and priestly system, they've gone back. That's why God is coming and prophesying that this destruction is going to happen. He's giving the words to Micah. It's a warning. The patience that that 
unfathomable patience of God has finally come up. That's an interesting point you made, especially regarding the archaeological position. Because right. if they have fallen away so far from God, you wouldn't expect to find those unique artifacts. That's that's interesting. That's something I'm going to have to think on. In fact, I'll think yeah. about it while we take a break. So, folks, <laughs> don't go anywhere when we come back. Pastor Jones and I will keep on going where we left off in Micah chapter 1. We'll see you on the other side of the world. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host. This is Thy Strong Word. And with me this morning is the Reverend Rick Jones. He's the chaplain there, but also the vice president of spiritual life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. And we have been going, well, I'll say we've been going through Micah, but really we're just starting it today. So you're here just in time. Before we head back to our text, I want to remind you once again that if you have any feedback, questions, comments, anything like that, I'm eager to hear them. I'm eager to share them on the air if you want me to. I can have my guest answer your questions. Just send me a, a message at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can friend me there if you'd like. We can talk through chat. I'm happy to do that. But let's get back to the text. Now, brother, just finishing up seven, we got to the point where you know we have this imagery of a prostitute because of that indivisible connection between adultery and and idolatry, especially going away from uh, God's people's relationship with their creator. But we said there's also a little bit of a literalness here, too. If, if they're adopting the, the false cultic practices of their neighbors that often included uh, temple prostitutes. Well, I was wondering, and I read this, I didn't come up with this on my own, but I, I read this, this idea that, well, from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. That is, they literally bought their idols with the money from their false worship. Yeah. But to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. Uh, I, the, the author I looked at says that this is pointing forward to when Samaria was destroyed around 722 by the Assyrians. And literally, they would take those treasures and continue to use them in the service of false gods. Uh, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it, it very much so, right? You, the the wealth that is captured when you conquer a town is going to go into whatever practices are happening in your society. So in the case of Assyria coming in and conquering Israel, then all of those fees, all of that wealth that had been put into this false worship is going to go right back to more false worship in the Assyrian Empire. Uh, it, it's also that idea that they went after these other gods. They went after these other societies. God has finally said, okay, if, if that's what you want, go ahead. And he turns them over to it. So they've been going after these other cultures. And now through Assyria's um, conquering, their conquest of Israel, they are going to 
become a part of that, this time not by choice. And, and so it's, it's that same idea of God turning them over to their sins. Here he's done that through the social political system of the day, through a conquering army, this army, this one headed by Sennacherib of, of Assyria. Um, in, in the next section, when we start to mention some of those cities, uh, maybe we can talk about how we know some of this. is it, It's corroborated outside of the biblical uh, witness with Sennacherib coming in and, and destroying these cities. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that they've, they've forsaken their relationship with God by going after foreign deities, foreign idols, and so they've now been turned over to those foreign idols, those foreign powers. Uh, it's a big, a big cycle, not just with their hearts, but now actually with their lives as well. Right. Well, and how often do people consider their what they have to do and what they have to spend their money on as more mm-hmm. important than even the condition of their heart? So it really comes down right. to it. You are going to be affected by this. And this Assyrian, this oncoming Assyrian invasion, well, that becomes more clear as we keep reading. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. All right, so just taking that chunk. He says, for this I will wail and lament. And he talks about being stripped naked and crying out. That What is that about? Well, again, the 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 utter despair that's coming with this. Notice it's not necessarily at the destruction of of the city uh, that uh, the prophet is weeping at here. It's at the the idolatry itself, right? It is so pervasive. It is so disgusting in its broken relationship with God, as it is adult adultery, right? It is it is breaking that covenant relationship. He is so saddened by this that he is going to mourn it, mourn the loss of that relationship. And he's comparing it, his sobbing is going to be so great that he's comparing it to to animals. He's he's stripping it all away. And and I mean, I guess jackals maybe have a, a howl that is is sad. I mean, we I, in this part of the the country we hear coyotes and they could be seen to be maybe a, a sad or ominous cry. I don't know about the jackals so much. Um, and ostriches, yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever heard them make a noise, but you know, <laughs> somehow um, it's associated with mourning. Other words, uh, sometimes that jackal's word is translated as dragon. Now I don't know what a dragon sounds like either. Right. Um, but that ostrich word is sometimes translated as owls, and there are definitely some owls that have a a, a call that is very mournful, very sorrowful. So um, that may be paints the picture a little differently for us. But that's that's what he's getting at. He's so grievous over what the people have done that he needs to put on the effects of mourning. He is he's going to grieve this broken relationship between God and the people. Uh, and then he he tacks on at the end here, you can't come back from this. It is so pervasive. It is it is so deep that it's spreading. And and that's what idolatry is, right? Idolatry is subversive and expansive. Our God is whatever we put our fear, love, and trust in. Note the allusion to the catechism there. Uh, it starts in our hearts and it spreads. It, it can even be contagious to other people as they see it in our lives. In the prophet's warning, 
the sins of Israel have spread now even to Judah. So they kept, Judah kept the right capital. They've kept the temple. So it looks like they're doing the right things, but they've, they've just broken all of that too. They've, they've twisted it. They've, they've perverted it to be not a house dedicated to Yahweh as their identifying feature, but instead they're using those tools that Yahweh gave them to worship these foreign gods. So both kingdoms are guilty of this violation towards God and have been, that God has, has with them. Uh, they, right? God has been present for them. He has protected them. He has served them. And they've thrown it all away to be like the nations around them. Uh, and so even Jerusalem is, is going to be destroyed. Now, not for another, you know, chunk of time here, 586 BC, uh, but uh, it's, it's coming. And, and it's right on the horizon for for uh, Israel and Assyria, or ex- excuse me, Israel and Samaria at the hands of Assyria. You mentioned earlier about how well you know here we have the the people of God and they are uh, walking through exactly what they want. God hands over mm-hmm. to them over to their their sinful idols or whatever. So this idea of lamenting with stripping naked and stuff. It's certainly a sign of lamentation. I think there's also a connection here, a little double entendre, pointing forward to the way in which the Assyrians would lead, a, uh, you know, they would lead away their captives. Um, Isaiah right. 20 talks about Assyria leading away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Well, Yahweh says, that's what's going to happen to you. So, you know, this stripped nakedness is this just all wrapped up of emotions, this mourning, this wailing, while at the same time, it's about the, the coming, you know, you're going to be given into that because right. of your, you want right. to be like the other nations? Well, this is what other nations do. Right. Um, and, and those animals, the jackals and the ostriches or the owls and the ostriches or the jackals and the owls, I don't know, whichever way we go, <laughs> um, you know, those two animals um, are are often connected in the scripture in parallel to mm-hmm. one another. So they must have been some sort of common owl definitely sounds spookier and I don't know what an owl, <laughs> like a like a giraffe. Who knows what a giraffe sounds like? So I have yeah, yeah they're have, they're like naturally no silent animals, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect. But what's not lost, as you pointed out though, is that even the mournful wails of lonely creatures like jackals right. or owls right. or ostriches, um, that's what it's gonna be like for you. Right. But what's behind all of this, I believe, is that it never had to be that way, or frankly, doesn't have to be this way. God, mm. God has God already decided that they're going to be judged. Um, do you feel like there's a? I know we haven't gotten very far, but do you feel like there's 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 a hope in the fact that God is warning them? Well, I I, I think anytime God is giving a warning, right? It's an opportunity for us to repent. It's an opportunity for us to turn away from our sin and turn back to him. That does not mean there will not be consequences for our sins. It just means that our relationship is now repaired. And so there will not be eternal consequences for those actions. And I think that's what we're seeing here. I think, yeah, I think it's it's going to happen. They are going to be sent into exile because, well, frankly, not everybody is going to repent. Right. But there will be a remnant, and this is a chance for that remnant to establish itself. It is a call to repentance for the people, even if they're going to be carried off. It is still an opportunity for them to be faithful. I think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and in, in uh, 
the 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 story with the fiery furnace. Right? They are going to be thrown into the furnace. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, furious, says, can your God save you from this fire? And, and they say, yes, he can. But even if he doesn't, we cannot right. bow to you. Right? And, and so they are faithful even if it means death. They, that's not going to change their actions. And I think the same thing, that's the type of confession we need from people in, in um, Israel and Judah at this time. Even though they're going to be taken off into exile, they can still be faithful. What a fabulous point, because that certainly applies to our lives today, too. How often do right. we judge our relationship with God based on how much we think he's blessing us? So mm-hmm. we either think that we've angered God and we're not receiving blessings but punishments, or we don't tend to love God as we should unless we're receiving benefits. So all kinds of ways to abuse our relationship with God. I think we're, we're tempted to fall into those ways today, too. So we can certainly hear in these warnings a warning for us. The, the next section, verses 10 through 15, I'm going to read. And this is chock full of, well, puns, isn't it? Yes. Uh, except you have to know Hebrew to get the puns, but I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll unpack those for you. Uh, let's start with verse 10. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth-le-Afra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'an, sorry, Za'anan, do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from Yahweh, the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath, to the houses of... Uh, Achzib, wow, shall be a deceitful thing (laughs) to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah, to the glory of Israel shall come to you, Adulam. All right, Phil, all you have to do is read it. Just read it. All right. Anyway, (laughs) we, we, verses 10 through 15, um, uh, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them really do have some, some little bit of wordplay going on. You want to break that down for us? Oh yeah, this this last section of the chapter, uh, verses ten through sixteen here, contains more more wordplay than anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, the 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 word in rhetorical terms is paranom, paranomasia, so it literally just wordplay. Uh, lots of puns, as you said. It uses the meaning or the sound of the word to emphasize the point of the statement, and it is present all over the place in here. Uh, many of the names of these cities and towns appear nowhere else in scripture because the prophet is specifically picking them. He's using these places to help amplify his artistic rhetoric in this oracle. Uh, and it's it's yeah, it's yeah it's everywhere. So uh, if we break some of them down, we'll start at verse 10 there with gath. Gath means wine press. Okay, so you're, you're squeezing the moisture out of the grapes. Well, gath is going to weep not at all. Uh, so the grapes are no longer going to release their their tears. Uh, also with that verse, tell it not. They don't want it to be made known. Their shame, 
They don't want it to be made public, lest their enemies are going to have more reasons to gloat over them and, and torment them. But so even at the very beginning, Gath, wine press, the grapes are no longer going to release their tears for the people. The Bethla Afra is house of dust. Uh, and so there, roll yourselves in the dust, which again is a sign for mourning. You put on ashes or dust in that sackcloth. So they're, they have something to grieve over here and their name is house of dust. Um, from there we get the uh, shafir, meaning beautiful. Well, nakedness and shame is sort of the opposite of beauty. So there you go. Uh, Za'an translates to get out, do not come out. It's just the exact opposite of the name here. Uh, lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. Well, Beth Azel, that Beth or Beth is always house. So house of sides or house at the side, maybe the idea here is the house next door. Um, but either way, the idea is you will no longer have that support next to you, right? That's being removed. Um, Maroth means to be bitter. Uh, so those that are supposed to be bitter are told to be opposite of themselves and wait anxiously for good. You, you can't even show your bitterness. It's the opposite. Just a weird little one there. Um, the, the, we, we, we get down to this next section here. Uh, when it talks about Lachish, um, and this one isn't so much the wordplay as it is the the cultural significance of Lachish. Uh, it's a fortified city. It's where uh, they believe Solomon had established his stables and had his chariots and things like that. And so it became the symbol of the the wealth and the power of the Israelite kingdom. Uh, it was eventually then associated with the injustice of the ruling class. They were overtaxing and impoverishing the people that they were instead supposed to be serving. And so the transgression of Israel is forsaking uh, their brothers, the other people, and setting up their own rules apart from God's directions. And so Lachish is the center point to kind of focus all that in socially, how those social structures that God had asked of them had been put to shame. Uh, the other thing with Lachish is the utter destruction that's being described in this prophecy. It's it's definitely uh, the destruction that's going to come at the command of Sennacherib of Assyria. And his I think his conquest was about 20 years. So it's like from 722 to 701. But 722 is when the exile happens. Uh, Lachish, we found in our archaeologists... That's why I say what does they mean. In um, in 1850, they they're excavating in Nineveh at the palace, and they find what we call the Lachish reliefs. They are 12 slabs of eight foot tall stone that assemble into one 80 foot long image of Assyria attacking and conquering this fortified city of Lachish. The image was hung in Sennacherib's throne room as a testimony to his power to any foreign visitors that he might be hosting. It's an amazing discovery that attests to the grim fate of God's people when they turned away from God. And so Lachish, and maybe there is some wordplay there, but I think the, the, the social significance is the more important piece. Yeah. Uh, but the wordplay will continue as well. Um, which By the way, I'm I'm looking yeah. at images of that relief right now, um, <laughs> and and folks, I encourage you to go Google it. It's um, it's impressive. It's great. Wow, yeah. I and I had not heard about this, so that's fascinating. 
Yeah, so again, attestation to the biblical events outside of the biblical narrative. We know the Bible's true. We trust Scripture, uh, but it's always wonderful when we have these outside uh, corroborations of the narrative. And, and the Lachish reliefs is, is pretty significant um, and just shows what happened to Israel. Um, but yeah, so that, that wordplay, uh, if we go back to, uh, I guess we're at verse 14 there, the Morasheth Gath, um, that word sounds like the word for dowry or so a gift you're giving to someone as your, your daughter is leaving you. So the parting gift idea, this is the last sort of thing saying goodbye to that relationship with the people here, the parting gift of Morasheth Gath. Uh, Agzib sounds like the word for lie or falsehood. So there you go. Uh, the houses of this falsehood will be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. They will be falsehoods for the people. Uh, and then Meresheth sounds like the word for possessor or conqueror. And so there you go. I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of the possessor city. You will not possess it anymore. The conqueror will. Uh, and then Adulam, this is an appeal to their, their history. Right? That's where David sought refuge when he was on the run. And here, Israel, all the, all the people of Israel, all, the, all the, the glory is going to try to go to Adulam, but it's, it's going to be not a source of refuge anymore. Even they will be wiped out. Uh, I think that's might, where that's where we yeah, ended. Some, there, that's where we ended. Someone might ask, you know, well, why? What's the point of this, Micah? Why are you using all of these? You know, you're, you're cherry picking cities so that you can connect them <laughs> to this. And um, I, you know, I, I think I can answer for Micah a couple things. I mean, the first and foremost, boy, that really would have helped them remember the message, wouldn't it? I mean, oh, absolutely. A, there is a yeah. didactic uh, value to this, but absolutely. I have another perspective too. You know, growing up down south, I, I went to tent revivals and everything else. And some of these more exuberant preachers, especially if they're extemporaneous, right? They're just preaching off the top of their head. And they mm -hmm. get real excited, and they start rhyming. <laughs> they, they start <laughs> sing-songing. Um, and it can, be, uh, it can be very powerful for someone who can do that well. I also kind of get the sense of Micah. You know, he's, he's certainly being didactic. He wants people to remember the message, but... I see the passion behind this, the fact that he's making these connections. You know, I, right. I'm not saying he's up there like a rap battle, but, you know, maybe close, right? Because <laughs> he's, he's just passionate about this. At, at least I hear that in the, the carefulness of this tone. It's just oh, a shame true. that it's lost in the English. Maybe yeah, it, so it is, it is it. tough, right? I, so if we wanted to come up with some English versions for people, you know, Springfield will be an eternal winter. Or um, right. Hill, Hillsdale will be made a plain. Um, Watertown will experience an everlasting drought. Thing, things like that. That's exactly. that's that's what he's doing here. Um, but yeah, in the Hebrew, we, we lose it in the English. Uh, and I think your idea of passion there and then as that teaching tool, right on. Uh, I mean, this is what rhetoric is for. We, we, right. That word gets a negative connotation in, in our current culture, I think, but rhetoric is just a tool for making your speeches memorable uh, and how you use language, how you use words to get your point across. Uh, these are first article gifts that we should be understanding and embracing for the sake of getting God's truth to the people, because Micah certainly does. We know Paul does the same thing in the New Testament with his letters, 
Um, it, it is. I like that idea of a rap battle. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, that might he's be a, that passionate about it, right? He's that, yeah. he's that um, f- forceful in, in what he's trying to do to make the people really understand what's at stake here. Uh, and he's using all of the tools at his disposal, uh, and they just happen to be rhetorical ones in this right. context. Well, going with the rap battle theme, our last <laughs> verse, well, it's the mic drop. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be moving into the next chapter about specifically pronouncing woes against basically the leadership, people who are in charge. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but right here in 16, you know that, well, we're not ending with good news, brother. No, again, starting it, starting it off with listen, everyone of the whole earth. Listen and, and take heed of this message. And now those of you who are going to experience it, it's time to get ready for deep mourning, deep grief, deep shame. Cut off your hair. Cut it all off. Shave it bald. And I, and I know in an American context, we have the imagery of a bald eagle, but that's not true boldness, right? I think maybe vulture might be a, a more significant look here. And I especially like the idea the vulture has that bald actually bald head, featherless head. You just see the the pink flesh, but also the idea of the vultures circle around the corpses, and that's where they get their sustenance. I'm not uh, 100% sure why the ESV went for eagle here. I mean, vulture <laughs> is how this is mostly translated. I, right. Sure. It, it makes sense. It makes yeah. sense, and I think the imagery is is more stark and more, uh, more devastating there. Um, because that's what Israel is basically going to be. It's going to be a corpse. Uh, it is. It is no longer the the place of of glory that it was designed to be. The people's sin have seen to that, and so you should get ready to proclaim that. Teach your children by the way you present yourself. Shave off all of all of that that hair. Uh, present yourself as bald as a vulture, as bald as the buzzard. As you are going to go into exile, you will be leaving. You will be taken out. You will be carried out naked and ashamed. And so you need to understand. You need to help others understand what's going to happen. Uh, it's it's a final call, I think, for that idea of of repentance, uh, the need of repentance. You you knew what you were supposed to do. You didn't do it. The time has come, and so you can still turn back. There's going to be consequences, but you can still turn your heart back to God. I appreciate that reminder about the consequences because so often we might think, well, if we say we're sorry, then we get out of the consequences, right? Right. But but that doesn't work with the, it doesn't work with our legal system, and frankly, it doesn't work <laughs> with our Lord either. No, you no, know, no. you can't just say you're sorry. There are consequences to our behavior, even when we have forgiveness. But at the right. same time, right? Absolutely. At the same time, this message, we're just reading a part of it, right? So it's really pointing forward to a hope, a promise of restoration that's coming. Um, We're here at the end of the show. Anything else you want the people to know before we wrap it up? Well, I just, you know, oftentimes we we skip over the minor prophets, uh, not because I don't think we actually think they're less important, but we don't don't use them a lot. There, There are a lot more things like this, these oracles that we don't, know exactly where they fit or they, they seem to be so contextual for a specific time in the Old Testament history. But I think we need to look at them and understand their poignance even for today. As, as you pointed out, we, we still live our lives amongst those that are unbelievers. We still live our lives 
essentially in, in a social, uh, at least religious exile and how we conduct ourselves, the choices that we make, how we help um, show that love of God forward is really important. We, we might live in a foreign land, a land that might be hostile towards us, and so that makes our outward choices all the more important. We have the opportunity to point to a covenant love with God uh, and not partake in the idolatry all around us. And so if we can learn from the warnings and the consequences of those Old Testament kingdoms, I think uh, we will be better off for it. And we can show our children, our the children of our delight, the proper choices to make. And that they have a God that, yes, even though there might be dire consequences in this life, there might be devastating things that we are asked to go through, we have a God that even then has not abandoned us and instead has given us a Messiah, given us a Savior that has gone through that same exile with us and is present for us as we live our lives in whatever context we find ourselves. He is very present, very true, and he is the one that provides for that eternal reconciliation and eternal dwelling with God. Excellent words from an excellent guest. I'd like to thank that guest, the Reverend Rick Jones. He's the chaplain and vice president of spiritual life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Brother, give them the website they can go to to learn more about what you guys do www.dakotaranch.org. You can find all descriptions of all of our services, even links to uh, how you can inquire about services, whether that's our residential programs or outpatient outpatient services. It's all right on there. Yeah, Pastor Jones isn't here to to pitch what they do, but I like to give him that <laughs> opportunity because it is such great work and we're very grateful for them. So uh, thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. I look forward to having you back. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, always like my time here. Thank you, Pastor Boo. Wonderful. All right, folks, tomorrow we're going to finish up our week with Micah chapter two. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, it's the first Friday of the month. Well, free text first Fridays will return, but in February. Um, so be sure to uh, you know look forward to that. But tomorrow, uh, even though it's the first Friday, we're going to be in Micah two. It continues the prophet's condemnation of injustice and social oppression, but it focuses on the leaders and the wealthy. We'll talk about that and what leaders' responsibility is to to their people and how it affects people even when they sin. So we're definitely going to look into that. So don't go anywhere. Uh, well, you can't go somewhere if you want. Otherwise, you can stay tuned to all the great programming on KFUO. I'll see you next time. Uh, bye-bye.